The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Clean Coders podcast. This week, I'm talking to Daniel Markham. Daniel, do you want to say hello? Hi there. I'm Daniel Markham. So uh, let's just get this out of the way. Who are you? Why are you famous and all that stuff? Beats the hell out of me. Got to know Bob and James Gurning, a bunch of the Agile guys back in the day, and just sort of hung with that crowd and along with the writing and thought leadering and all that other stuff. So I guess maybe I'm more like a groupie or <laughs> I'm, I'm not exactly a lackey. I actually code, right? I am an art systems yep. architect, self-taught programmer. But no, I did not appear in any sort of movies. or. There you go. Yeah, it's interesting, too. I'm kind of a groupie myself. I get this email out of the, you know, well, I had a friend introduce me to Tad, and they're like, we're thinking about doing a podcast. And I'm like, with Bob, right? This has been really, really fun to pull together and talk to a lot of the folks involved in the Clean Coders stuff. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coders Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coders Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. You mentioned that you're a system architect. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you do for your daily work now? And then we can kind of rewind and talk about where you came from. Well, for the last year or so, I've actually been home being a lazy bum more than anything else. No, I'm saying that, but I say that in jest. You guys have to remember that I joke quite a bit. I'm known as a jokester. I've been working on three books at home. I've been working on several sample projects and I've been doing some system, well, DevSecOps for a cryptocurrency company. So I've been doing a lot of stuff, but I've been doing it at home. My youngest daughter got married, what, two months ago? And I wanted to be Mm -hmm. home for that last year she was here. Right. Makes sense. I live in a rural area and uh, I did a lot of work riding at jet places. And I just yep. uh, kind of get burned out on it for a while. Yeah, that I understand. This last year has been a lot of that for me. And it's like, you know what? I kind of like being around for my kids and my wife. So yeah, yeah totally understandable. Yeah. So what are your books about? I'm a self-taught programmer. And by mm-hmm. being self-taught, I just kind of rose through the ranks. Ended up training teams and organizations on how to run good teams of programmers. Technical practices, yeah. XP, uh, the whole thing, right? Full stack stuff. And it really fretted me because I thought it saw a lot of, well, at the time it was poor backlogs, but really got down to the fact of trying to use our programming tools to sort of manage the way projects are done. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just the wrong metaphor. I think we think of projects as being a bunch of data or a bunch of bits we move across a wire. And really, it's more about sort of um, meeting with the user and coming to agreement yeah. on what they really want and then just doing the minimal amount of work to make that happen. Yeah, I've heard people compare it to storytelling. And essentially, yeah, what you're saying is is that we get together with the user and make sure we're telling the same story. Yes, I I think the natural tendency of technical folk, especially, is to take something simple and make it very complicated. Yep. But it's so so, easy to do, too. And so, but there was a challenge there because, you know, we do have a large industry and there are a lot of people and a lot of organizations. And so, what I really wanted to do is kind of move beyond Agile and XP and talk about like, how did we get Agile and XP? Mm-hmm. Why did that make sense? Because what we saw with the Agile folks is they really started off in a small development community, small teams, small software. And then now we've seen lately people trying to scale that out to you know, hundreds and thousands of people. Don't, don't work so well. Yeah. 
And so you just can't say it doesn't work so well because that's not really adequate. <laughs> <laughs> that sucks. I don't like that. No, it, it's not yeah. good. Uh, stop doing that. Also bad. So basically, I, just, I wanted to come up with a simple and easy way of explaining to companies, hey, this works. This doesn't work. Here's why this works. And here's why this doesn't work. Now you can go do play on your own. So it's, I didn't write a process book. Or we don't have any like flow charts or right. forms to fill out. I just wrote about here's how you can start with zero and create whatever you need. I like it. Yeah. In fact, the interview that I did with Bob Martin, we talked about his book, Clean Agile, which goes into a lot of that stuff. So Bob is a hoot. I, uh, I did a video interview with Bob oh, four or five years ago. I had never met him before. Uh-huh. And every time I brought up some sort of nerdy topic like Star Trek, he pulls out like a Star Trek model. And as I bring up like <laughs> computers, he pulls out something with rubber bands and paper clip. Like, Bob, what the hell, dude? It's like, like whatever I mentioned. At one point, I think he pointed to like a PHP head in a background somewhere. Uh-huh. So yeah, I, I realized at that point that my nerdetry was not enough. There was like another level of nerdetry up in the sky somewhere <laughs> I could aspire to one day. Yep, absolutely. I'm a little curious. I mean, how did you uh, wind up getting connected with Bob and Clean Coders and all of that stuff? Well, like I said, a self-taught programmer, I had a hoot doing the sort of parachute thing in, uh, make stuff happen for folks. Got really, really good at that. And then I had a big corporation call me and say, hey, look, you know how to make things happen fast using Agile and XP. I'm like, I do. You also knew structured programming and, and UML and all those other things. I, I do that as well. I teach all of that. Great. We got half our people who want to do this one way. The other half want to do it the other way. We want to bring you in as a technical coach. Hmm. And so I came in and they had 730 projects running. Wow. Walked in the door. All yeah. of a sudden, my head hurts. <laughs> yeah, I was there about two years. Uh, it was something else. I think it was a good experience to see all the different ways we screw up things that we don't have mm-hmm. to. So I, I'd reached a point where one day I was really burnt out. And I went home and I just started blogging on the way on the keyboard. And I, I said, you know, the way we're implementing Agile, this really sucks. Yeah, you know, we do this kind of gold star. I'm with this big, I just did a tirade. Yeah. And it got uh, Bob and a bunch of other guys' attention. And they were kind enough to come by and respectfully comment on my, my essay. And it started a conversation. That's how I met Bob. I told him he sucked. <laughs> nice. I mean, it, it, one of the bigger problems is the fact that we're looking at Agile and XP as if we're training people on C. You know, so we bring trainers in, we do like PowerPoints or whatever. And, uh, you know, working with people effectively and like uh, simplifying problems, that's not C++. That's a, that's a different kind of skill, right? So I think corporations had the wrong model of what they were doing. And so it really wasn't Bob and I mean, they did a great job what they did, but it was just not applicable to where it's being used, right? I mean, that makes sense to a certain degree. But yeah, so if you can't just teach it as the same way you teach a technical skill, then how do you approach it, right? How do you get companies, especially larger organizations. I've seen Agile work really well on like smallish teams, but in the large organizations where they have a large number of developers, yeah, how do you get everybody rowing in the same direction then? It's a funny thing. And I ended up writing a book on it that was called InfoOps. And now I've got InfoOps 2, which is about how you apply those lessons to being a programmer. And the third book, which is about like scaling it out, I think probably part of the answer is the fact that you can make sort of a a rigid structured programming system work at least for a little while in a small team, right? And so there's something there about how you do analysis and design. There's some sort of thing there that we're we're missing when we scale it out. And I I don't want to tease you, but it's a whole book. So, I mean, it's really, it gets down to how do you do analysis, right? What is analysis? How do you do analysis? What's the purpose? 
And once you understand what analysis is, then you start talking about, are we doing analysis well? Because analysis is really all the conversation you have around the problem without actually typing on the keyboard. Okay. It's to talk with the user. It's to talk with the guy next to you or whatever. And once you start coding, you're doing design at that point, right? You're actually doing some tests and you're doing some structure and all that. So analysis is how we have those other conversations. And, uh, I think we had a lot of happy talk. We had a lot, we've had a lot of people come into the industry from sort of the training world and the executive tra- you know, seminar world and really cool stuff. But there is a tech weenie kind of thing going on there and just stuff you can learn. It's not just uh, bunnies and puppets. Not, not that there's anything wrong with bunnies and puppets for you guys out there who do that. <laughs> there's probably some guy right now with, damn it, my bunny and puppet job just shot the hell. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> So that was how to do analysis. And then uh, people were like, okay, that you're talking about how a team works. Dude, show me how like I can use what you're teaching me today on the code I'm doing. So I right. took all those ideas. And then uh, I'd been doing essays for the past year and come up with a bunch of other new stuff. Like I have a concept of good enough programming, a bunch of different stuff like that, that mm-hmm. I'm ready to release in a second book. So it's it's been fun. I, I know, privileged to know a lot of smart people and I've Work with a bunch of cool folks doing hard problems. And I felt like it was time to do a book report. Yep. So how do you start organizing this? Because it sounds like you've written a bunch of essays. You've done a bunch of other work talking about this. But yeah, how do you, how do you get it together into a book? Well, the first thing I did was, uh, of course, learn how ebooks work. Because you have mm-hmm. to do that, right? So you have to have a compiler. It's XML. And there's, oh, it's just, it's uh, well, it's not needed. But I learned it. And I, then I set up a workflow. And that was a big waste of time. I, I, it was cool, I guess. It finally got with the first book. I put it off for years and I'd been doing other work and I was busy. A couple of friends of mine, Greg Young and Mike Feathers were like, just, hey, dude, just start and write until you finish. Mm-hmm. And what I did was exactly that. Just I, may, I pounded the way through somehow or another. It was uh, much more stream consciousness than I thought it was going to be. But yeah. that's what I needed to do to get the book out. One of the things that we face as tech folks is that we want to do things perfectly. <laughs> oh, I hear that. So that can be our own worst enemy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I put my first book out, what, like three weeks ago? Whoa. And yeah, it, it was it was all that, right? It was like, well, I'm not done because it's not perfect. And yeah, just, you know, kind of organizing it a little bit. I actually did like a, a mind map and then I did an outline and then I just started writing. What I decided to do, I felt the only way to go at the problem was to start with a team and just do, I don't want to say a parable, but just you have mm-hmm. a team, you have a problem. Here's how you meet the customer. Here's the first conversation you have. Here's what you start doing as you talk back and forth. And then using that as an example, I could pivot off to, you know, this works in different areas. Right. So what does this team look like then? Because I'm kind of curious how you characterize sort of your average team or at least a team that could use this kind of help. Actually, I did a deck building team. I had done a previous book that that was that was fun. That was a team working at a robotic chicken factory. Mm. You see, the thing I was talking to a friend of mine on Twitter just now, the thing is, is if you make it too specific, uh, well, somebody out there is going to go, oh, no, wait a minute, that's really fine for web development. We're actually doing crypto, blah, blah, blah. Right. And you make it too generic, they're like, well, there's no traction here. So I used deck building. I uh, explained the concepts. I, I would, For each concept, I would show a couple software examples, and then I would actually do the team, some guy who wants a deck built. And the Long and short of it was by having good conversations with the guy who needs the duck bill, you save him money by not building more than he needed. Right. Uh, Easy enough to see when you're building a deck and that guy Mm -hmm. comes by every day, but not so easy when you're working remotely, you're building a web app or something. Yep. And then uh, 
how do you walk somebody through the process of figuring out what they need to build and how they need to build it and, and all of those things then? Hmm. Well, I think that the key thing to really realize is that when you're talking about a software project, there are really only three things. There's behavior, structure, and supplementals or, or non-functionals. Mm-hmm. No matter what conversation you're having, it, it falls in one of those three buckets. And so basically, I created sort of a library system around those three buckets. So really, you're looking for behavior first. What do you want this mm-hmm. deck to do, right? Uh, right? And while you're having a behavior conversation, you're saying, well, how many people do you need? That, that's a sort of a supplemental test. And your behavior and supplementals, your tests around those, drive out your code, your structure. So right. one of the things is that you, you can't code anything unless you got behavior and structure. So unless you have a desired behavior and some sort of tests in your mind, even if you don't write it down like you should with TDD, unless mm-hmm. you have that, you're not coding because you have no goal to sort of shoot for, right? Right. And so you just need to explicitly realize, okay, I need to figure out what behavior this thing has to have. And then under what conditions, lots of people in the rain, you know, people who have one leg and whatever. And then if you can categorize your information, then you can realize, oh, I don't have enough behavior or supplementals. One of the many mistakes people have do wrong is they start putting their, their structure in their backlog. So, I mean, I've had teams, you, you walk in and they've got, you know, table 47 would be a backlog item. Mm-hmm. You're like, dude, table 47, what the hell is that? Well, we got to move table 47 from here over there. Well, how do you, how do you know it's moved right? We don't really. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we don't. Yeah, uh, data warehousing is a whole, another animal. Yeah. But you, you have to do behavior. So, you, you ha- the only really conversation you have is around behavior and supplementals. That narrows uh, probably a third of the errors out right there. Right. One question I have then, you know, because you're saying, yeah, move table 47 from over here to over there. Where do you manage that then? Do you tuck it up under a behavior or a supplemental? Yeah, the uh, I had a data warehousing is a whole other inbox. I'll explain to you how yeah. it works because it's it was sort of a fascinating experience. I had a, a client in Silicon Valley and they had an existing product that was working in one database system and they wanted to move it somewhere else and sell it in this other platform. Right. But golly, who knew all the original code programmers were gone. And so they're, mm-hmm. sort of, they're like, but it works. All we need to do is move it over. And well, the thing is that different database platforms have different you know, capabilities. And to your thing, how do you write that out as behavior? Right. And the answer is really what you write that out as the tests that test the behavior. Okay. So you, you guys got to start writing some tests because you're going to need a suite of tests to prove that this current system actually works, which may or may not be true. And then once you have all those, you know, two, three hundred, however many tests, then you just have a big to-do list and you keep going through the to-do list until the tests all pass in the new system. Right. That makes sense. So yeah, so it's not a move the database over. It's okay. You know, we, we know what the end product needs to be doing. And so we're going to back onto that and make sure that all the behavior works. And then when we move it over, yeah. It's the old thing of, you know, I can see the table. So the work must be the table, right? I can yeah. see the class. So I must be working with the class. No, no. What you're working with is desired in behavior. The class and the IDE or the table, these are just sort of intermediate tools to get you there, right? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too. I mean, going back to the idea of working with your users and understanding what they want, you know, kind of telling the same story is that your users typically, not always, but typically aren't going to be looking at it the same way you are. And so what happens is, is that what they care about are the behaviors as well. Yeah. And so if, if the behaviors don't line up, then, 
you know, they don't care about the classes. They don't care about the database. They don't care about the tests. They don't care about any of it. You know, we're in the business of teaching people how to use hammers. I love hammers. Hammers are great, Mm -hmm. right? And I can write in a dozen different languages. Cool stuff. Lots of fun. Yeah. First thing we have to teach folks with hammers is when not to use the hammer. Yeah. So the worst freaking thing you can do in a technology organization is come into work with not a lot to do and try to find something to do. You know, bad idea. Uh, but you want to <laughs> work for those tests. There's an ATD test, yeah. right? Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned this as in kind of a, a system where they weren't starting from scratch, right? They had a system that, I guess, mostly worked, or at least they thought it mostly thought it worked. worked, and they were trying to convert it or readapt it for something else. So uh, if I walk into a project like that, how do I start thinking about these issues so that I can get it to run? Because I'm looking at this pile of work now and it's like, well, okay, well, I've got to write a lot of tests. And then I've got to, you know, I've got to adapt those tests to the behavior in the other system and things like that. So, so what are kind of the fundamental steps to doing something like that? It's a lot of fun. It's, it does, it's not traditional programming. I, I've been doing Dev, DevSecOps for the last year or so, and I've worked with some of the top guys in, in the industry and uh, asking the same question. One of the guys is, was working for a large fruit company in Silicon Valley. Anyway, what he said, and made a lot of sense to me, you start at the wire, start the network interface. So people are coming into your system to reach some sort of goal. And, and, and that coming to that system is going to involve some HTTP traffic. It's going to involve you know, some network calls or some posts and, and all that. Read those. And, and you yeah. should get a pretty good idea of what the system does from the outside. Mm-hmm. And then so what you start doing is picking the, the top behavior that you're implementing, and then you trace it on through the system and replace it. Right. At first, if you're doing like a stand uh, one by one type system, you have to sort of do a dual back end and then you just do the front end tracing through. Mm-hmm. If you follow what I'm saying. So, so um, if you've got behavior like balance checkbook, okay. Right. And it works in the old system. So you, you've caught it. You've caught it at the HD post level. Okay, cool. I got to do balance checkbook. You write a new balance checkbook using visual Klingon or whatever your thing is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that new method actually has to update both the old database and the new one, right? Oh, okay. The whole thing's moved over. I gotcha. Or you could write a separate test suite and then just... You have to write tests no matter what, but you're actually yeah. asking where to start. So you start from the fact that users are getting some value from it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And then you said dual backend. So if I'm essentially copying the system, removing the system over or something like that, so I hit one app and then the other app? Well, yeah, that's an architectural deployment kind of question. Right. Do you do a message queuing for both... Uh, backends. Uh, you've got an acid thing going on. I mean, there's a whole, yeah, yeah. I'm, I am oversimplifying just sort of to, to get right. the interview. Frame. No, that makes sense. So yeah, so you get the test running. There are different layers of tests in my experience, right? You've got the kind of the end-to-end test, right? So I stand up a system, stick data in it, run the test, you know, did the data, you know, did I get the behavior I expected? And then you've got sort of integration tests or or unit tests that are kind of at a lower level, right? Does this system talk to that system properly? Or, you know, does this function or method or whatever behave the way I expect it to? So do you start at the outside with these end-to-end level tests and then work your way in? Yes. Yeah, you do. And in fact, I think the danger here would be to sort of reproduce the existing layers of architecture in the new system. Mm -hmm. Because as long as you can hit the persistent storage in the new system... And the backends stay in sync such that you get the same data both ways. It doesn't matter what your new system looks like, right? You want it to be like one line of code if you can get away with that. Right. No, that that makes sense. And it's interesting too, because 
yeah, I, I assumed that, yeah, in the new system, you would just do it the same way as the old system. But re- in reality, again, the narrative is the behavior. Yeah, I had a, a, one of the, like I said, I've been, this year, I've been working on the, how does this apply to programmers? And one of the ideas I had was good enough programming. And, and the good enough programming idea is don't code if you don't have to. Uh, code the minimal amount you need to do the tests and, and make the behavior happen. And always code to be able to walk away from your code. Right. So if you can do those three things, you're good enough. You're not mm-hmm. perfect. You probably have a lot of things you need to fix, but that's good enough so that you don't have ongoing maintenance costs so that you've actually done what's needed. Uh, I think a lot of times we start with the method and then we sort of make the method fit whatever our mental idea of, the, like you just did, whatever our mental idea of the problem is. Uh, it's better to start with the problem and just try to figure out what's the simplest way I can make the, the method test pass. Right. And then when you said, and then I can walk away from it, what exactly do you mean by that? What I'm seeing a lot is uh, teams pick up a project and it never goes away. I mean, it's just like mm-hmm. it's, it exists like the pyramids. They'll be here 100 years from now. But not all teams do that. A lot of teams can pick up a project, solve the problem, and solve it in such a way that they go away and nobody looks at the code again for five or six years. And I'm like, you know, I think I'd rather be on the second team yeah. than the first bunch. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes me feel better about my code too, right? Yeah, if it runs, yeah, if it'll run forever, more or less. If there's nothing people are complaining about, why would you want to go back into it? I mean, don't you have more useful things to do with your career and stuff? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, the good enough programming thing is a little counterintuitive. I think a lot of programmers don't believe that you can actually walk away from a project. I think you explain this to people like, oh, no, of course not. You've had... What about server updates? Well, you know, mm-hmm. you can you can go serverless. A lot of people are doing serverless. Well, what about you know, for every one of those what ifs? There are solutions, and you should at least consider them. Yeah, I mean, the the one that came to my mind was, well, what if there's a new version of Rails or Angular or something that that fixes a a security bug, right? Then I'm gonna have to come back in and update, right? Yes, but. Even then, there's a difference between having a DevOps pipeline that's rock solid and it's tested. In which case, you would just make sure your tests still ran correctly. And this whole sort of manual release process, it may take up you know, who knows how long. Yep. DevOps is, I mean, oh my God, this is what we were doing when we started was DevOps. And it's like, somehow we took DevOps and we split it into little pieces and gave little pieces to mm-hmm. a bunch of little people to do. And then guess what? We really suck at it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so it's good that we're getting back to doing real DevOps because it's really needed. Yep. Very cool. Now, are these conversations that you have with people on a regular basis or? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been, like I said, um, been coaching for uh, eight, 10 years. Um, right. I do a lot of technical talks. It's, uh, yeah, pretty much. I I try to code at least three apps a year. Uh-huh. And um, tell you, I haven't written, written an Apple app yet, but uh, I've done static websites. I've done all, I've done serverless deploys. I try to make sure I understand how to do the work that's being done. Right. As somebody who's a coacher, I'm a technical guy. Nobody's going to believe me unless I can actually do the work, which I think is pretty reasonable. Yep, I agree. So uh, I, I guess what I'm kind of aiming for a little bit here is, so if you sit down next to somebody at a conference and you start having a conversation, is it this conversation or is it usually a different conversation that you wind up diving into? Sort of depends on the audience. I did a talk on non-standard teams at Agile 29, 2009. And so this is just how you use XP Agile practices if you're doing like a marketing team. Mm, okay. And so in that case, it, it gets sort of be almost like a 20 questions, things like we we're doing here where it was just, well, okay, well, how, about, how do you do like yearly plans? How do you do sequential items? How do you, you know, 
that's been fun. It's one of the reasons I, I think I have enough material, at least to make up a book, if not actually write one. Right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It, it varies. I, um, wow. Had a, I was, went to a, my wife attends a local church. I, I, I'm not a religious guy, but she does. She went to this uh, event last week. And so meet these nice people. I live in a very rural area, have trees and cows, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm sitting in this house and, and the guy next to me says, you know, I've been investing in Bitcoin for the last three months. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> and then he goes on to start talking about you know, exchange rates and how you can do arbitrage. And so you know, the work we do as technologists, you know, when I started off, a personal computer is an odd thing, but it, it just keeps taking over everything. We're, we're mm-hmm. eating the world here. To answer your question, it sort of depends on where the reader's coming from. Right. With that guy, we talked about the cryptocurrency and smart contracts and, and the mm-hmm. fact that, that the, the, a ledger is not totally safe. If you can actually subpoena one part of the ledger, you can sort of walk your way forward. Lots of fun stuff there. Yep. Interesting stuff. We actually have a podcast on blockchain. Might have to get Ooh. you on that one. So what's your background before all of this, right? How did you get started in programming and, and kind of build your way into the conversations about agile and teams and working together and writing solid code and things like that? Uh, well, started writing uh, programs. My first contract program, I was 18 years old. Agile 2E was a, a basic program doing a bookkeeping system for a local accountant. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> that was painful, but it was fun. Uh, then I did a comic book a store inventory management system. I went in the Marines. I came out and uh, went to college and uh, did much better after in, I was in the Marines. But I just couldn't get away from computers. I, uh, I really wanted to do freelance writing. And one of the reasons I'm sort of a jokester person, and it may seem a, a little glib of things, is the fact that I, I love being creative. I love photography and writing stuff. The bit stuff really, I don't want to say doesn't interest me. It interests me where it intersects with people, right? Mm-hmm. So I understand sort of most, a lot of things about programming. And when I see, and I enjoy talking to people. So when I see people interact with the machine, that fascinates me. I, I went, we did this F sharp case study. I went to, up to uh, see Bob and James Grinning. Mm-hmm. Of course, Bob's a Uber nerd with a coding thing. And James is the embedded software TDD guy. Oh, okay. But both guys had never done a lot of functional code before. Mm-hmm. And I had never done this sort of do, you know, whatever Bob does. I don't know if he juggled. I don't know. I never really <laughs> didn't know what he's going to do. And so I get there and um, I am watching Bob and James kind of struggle through writing a simple kind of functional method. Right. And uh, James is using zombies and he's doing all the things you should do in sort of a mutable O world, beautiful stuff. But it wasn't working. It was painful. I sort of sat there like a deer in the headlights thinking, oh, my God, you know, they're, they're going to kill me for this. <laughs> um, but to be honest, I loved it. One of the reasons I loved it was because I got to watch two really smart people sort of come to a new technology and struggle with certain, how does it work? Right. Right. And that to me was awesome because it was like, okay, okay James is doing zombies. I understand how he's kind of walking through case by case of this structure here. Bob's, yeah, I think Bob got this sort of, we're doing vectors, but then we went off the rails a different way with that. But I told him after it, like guys, I apologize. I really just enjoyed watching you guys as guinea pigs. <laughs> it, that, that, that was to me more fun than, than, than helping because uh, I wasn't in a place where I could actually sort of do hands-on with them because, well, I didn't, like I said, I was just uncomfortable with working with Bob and James. Right. But that was fun. It was, it was a good, good exercise. I'm glad I did it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it seems like they, they kind of overcame that eventually. So where's that tipping point, right? How hard do you have to bang your head against the wall before you get it? Well, I started F-Sharp 
when F Sharp came out 2009 or so, probably took me a year or two. When I first started, I was telling on Twitter, I was just ranting and I was like, yeah, gee, it's like I have to carry a linker around in my head all the time. Mm-hmm. It was just driving me crazy. I finally realized it was actually easier than all. But to, to get to that point, I had to realize that what I was really doing was setting up a database, right? So right. a good pure functional program actually is just a series of transforms from an input to an output. Mm-hmm. And as long as you can do pure transforms and you have a limited number of inputs, you should be able to do the same thing in an SQL statement had there been tables or whatever. Right. And so you have smells and your smells and functional programming is different than your smells and all mm-hmm. mutable variables, big smell, a lot of other ones. But I realized that there's some analogies that help. So instead of trying to write the smallest test you could and make that pass, what you're really trying to do is try to find the smallest vector transformation that takes you closer to the goal. When functional programming is done well, and this, this is kind of why I became a fan, still am. When it's done well, you're never actually coding it correctly. I think in OO, if you, if you stick with solid and TDD, right. you always kind of know you're structuring things the right way. But with functional programming, you're sort of discovering the nature of the problem as you're interacting with it. By discovering, I mean, you're, you are actively sim- simplifying the transforms. Okay. So, you know, the common, the first mistake people make moving over is just kind of start writing uh, objects. No, that's the wrong way of doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. You really want to go to more of an onion architecture where at the outside of the onion, you're, you're doing all, all sort of the data validation, wires down, disk full, all that crap. And then by the time you get to the heart of the onion, you should just have structured pure types. that You're just doing, you know, count up a list of strings or something. In, in fact, if you ask a functional programming, what's primary, what sort of, what their app does, they'll usually say, well, it's really simple. It actually sort of alphabetizes a list of energy. They'll, they'll say something really simple and you go look right. at the code. It's like, yeah, that little method was like, you know, three lines, but there was 150 lines around that that did a whole bunch of other stuff. Right. You're taking those smells and doing those vector transforms. And if you do that the right way, the really cool thing that happens is that, and this, like I said, this is why I became a fan. Whatever your initial code base, whatever your size is for that, that solution, it starts shrinking because you realize, oh my God, this is like another example of this. And this is sort of parameters. Mm-hmm. And then it just, at some point you're like, how can I do this in four lines? It makes no sense to me at all. Which is one of the reasons you really want to write code you can walk away from. Right. You, you don't have to go through the discovery process again. Oh, 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 oh is awesome in that you're actually sort of categorizing your function, your data as you go along. So theoretically, you can come back and find out what's going on. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm, I'm curious, this sort of journey that you went on, is that the same journey you see people going on now where we're seeing a lot of adoption in different programming communities for functional languages? I mean, all the way down to like Erlang and Elixir, all the way up to using like Elm on top of JavaScript or functional JavaScript or things like that. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to rag anybody. Elixir's awesome. A friend of mine's doing a mm-hmm. Elixir app that does, um, I think he had, did something with Bob. It does like a multi-threaded testing, enterprise-wide testing thing, mm-hmm. which Erlang is, is, Erlang kicks butt. I actually want to go uh, pick up some more Erlang. Uh, the actor model rocks. But having said that, what I am seeing a lot of is like, we used to do it this way, so let's keep doing it this way. We'll just add this other thing on top. <laughs> right? It's like, I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's a good idea. I had an idea. Well, a year and a half ago, somebody said, we want to write a blog. We want the blog to be really secure so nobody can mm-hmm. break into it. Right? How can you the, a blog as secure as possible? And the answer had to be, well, you don't have a back end. Right? Right. So there's nothing to hack into. So you have a static site. To your point, you really don't want to add a bunch of modules in that have security bugs later on. Mm-hmm. And so 
I ended up doing this view kind of pluggable Vue.js uh, component system blog. Of course, you have to have data for a blog. And so right. what, what it did for the data was I found a, a service called Airtable.com. Mm-hmm. They have little databases. And so you'd actually, I have a database for my blog, fill the database table out. And then I have a cron right. job that pulls all that down in a JSON format and just copies up to the root of the, the web directory. And so I have a pluggable blocking system with, I guess, under 400 lines of code that that also I can change as I want to, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a different way of looking at the problem and saying, hey, you know, what I really want to do is some sort of like client-side OO, you know, MVM thing with, with you know, Elm or whatever. Um, right. To me, that, that may be trouble down there. I love Elm. I've seen some great examples in it. But trying to think of the old way and just add the new stuff on top could be a bad place to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see this with microservices. I had a team. I was working with a big financial provider three years ago, big credit card company. And they, they were doing microservices. Like, hey, come mm-hmm. down, help us out. We're doing microservices. I went down to see the team and said, that's great. You're starting. We're already about three weeks in and we've picked out a platform. I'm like, well, okay. Why would you? Okay. Okay. A platform. And then, and then hey, we, we bought this thing from Big Corp, which I will not name. And it's got all these components in it. And you got this big chain. Like, oh, we're doing this is diagrams. And, and I'm like, well, that's uh, wow. You know, that's a lot of stuff. How do you plan on doing that? And uh, they were going to they were going to set up a workflow pipeline using this god awful tool, and then they were going to have <laughs> they're going to have like the first thing in the chain was going to sort of data validation, mm-hmm. and and then they were just going to keep like, I think it was a message queue back in uh, one of the message queue systems. They're just going to keep you know fire hosing this stuff from the front end through the pipeline. And I'm like, well, what if the what if the message format's corrupt, or what if there's a delay? You know, I oh I never thought of that. So. The thing is, if you're writing a tiered system in a workflow, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's dumb. Right? I'm just saying that right? you shouldn't be doing that, right? If you're writing a microservice, your microservice should run on an OS without dependencies. It should right. take anything you throw at it, and it should not break. And if you throw the right stuff at it, it should move mm-hmm. data to the next step. Right. And yeah, that means you might have a lot of little microservices. Once you start adding the word framework, any sort of framework to that that problem. You're assuming that there's some sort of generic problem that needs to be solved in a generic way. And uh, that just, I don't know. I haven't seen that work very well. Interesting. We're kind of getting toward the end of the the recording. I'm curious. Yeah, you mentioned you're working on the books. And uh, yeah, what, what's the latest coding project that you've picked up? And what stack are you working on it in? I just had a conversation with Michael Feathers a couple of weeks back. And we're talking about um, incremental strong typing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the Bobster. I don't even know. I'm trying to figure out what that looks like. Yeah, that's, that's the problem. Yeah, the, the Bobster tweeted something uh, last week or something. It was like, you know, types don't eliminate the need for the testing, right? Right. And my head kind of exploded at that minute, and I'm like, well, Bob, no, wait a minute. If you're if you're, if you're pure functional and you're doing forced pattern matching, that that type with that pattern in it controls program flow, and there's a one to one linkage there, such that the type actually changes the flow, right? Right. So less flow, no test. It's uh, the type. Anyway, well, there's a long process there about how types implement programming. As you know, probably by now, oversimplify a lot. So programming really kind of boils down to like changing a variable state, communicating with the outside work, whether returning her function or using IO monads, right. or control flow. That's it. That's the three basic kinds of things you could do in programming. You change a variable state, you send something to the outside, or you have some different, different kind of flow. Yep. And in pure functional programming, you can't change the variable state because the variables are immutable. 
right? right. If you write it on your architecture, your, all your conversation with the outside world should not be part of your code. So that just leaves you control flow. And if you tie control flow on a one-to-one basis with your types, your types are your code. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes, uh, Scott, uh, oh, I can't pronounce his last name, Walchain, I think. There's a, uh, I think the DDD book out in F Sharp. Excellent book. Awesome mm-hmm. book. And it's about, you start the event storming, and then you basically set up an F Sharp system using types that just sort of locks the program and to do just what I'm saying. So it can only function in the correct fashion. Right. The assumption the book seems to make is that you do this sort of huge modeling thing up front and then you, you code it and then mm-hmm. you have the answer. Well, you know, of course that's not the real world. Right. Right. And so, and so I was talking to Michael, I'm like, Michael, look, dude, you just, what you need to do is just sort of add, you know, strong types in as you need it. And then those strong types control your flow. And he's like, you really need to do a demo of that to show people what you're talking about. Okay, let's do that. So that's, we started on that uh, this week. Oh, nice. Yeah, I'd like to see that because I'm, I'm still kind of, yeah, trying to figure out the concepts on that. And a demo would, I think, really kind of cement it. Yeah, it's, I think it's one of those things that, that once you, I have a problem with once I learn something, it's difficult. A lot of things you just sort of, oh, gee, that's obvious. And if you do any sort of training, you have to sort of take it apart and explain it to any paper. Yeah, very cool. Before we wrap up, is there a place people can find you online if they want to hire you as a coach or see what you're writing about or thinking about? Sure thing. Uh, the, one of the articles I was talking about today is in uh, tinygiantbooks.com. And it's tiny-giant-books.com. And so you can read about good enough programming. You can read about mm-hmm. um, a, a code cognitive load. You can read about uh, full stack work, uh, code budgeting. We didn't, there's a bunch of stuff we haven't talked about yet. Oh, yeah. Uh, why reusable components are so difficult. So if you're interested in like be a better coder stuff from like theory on out to actual coding examples, drop by, say hi. Everybody's welcome. Please, if, you, if I'm wrong, you know, throw some rocks at me. So I did it with Bob. <laughs> and uh, if people wanted to check you out on like Twitter or GitHub and see what you're doing there. It's Daniel B is in Bravo Markham. So it's uh, both my Twitter handle and my GitHub handle. Nice. All right. Well, thanks for coming and talking to me for uh, 45-ish minutes, Daniel. Cool beans. Been nice meeting you, Chuck. Yeah, you too. We'll have to do it again. Cool beans. I'd like to do that. Look me up. All right. Sounds good. Talk to you later. Yep. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.